You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome, everyone. Good to see everyone out tonight. Uh, We're carrying on in our series on 10 hard questions, but we have a special event tonight, a special event with a particularly hard question. And it's such a hard question that I brought in another David to answer this particular hard question. Um, Tonight, it's actually quite exciting because uh, we are co-hosting this event with uh, my alma mater, with Regent College. Regent College is a graduate school of Christian studies uh, located uh, up on UBC campus. And it's been there for a long time. And I used to work there and I I studied there. David studied there. And... uh, and it's so cool to, uh, and over the years, as many of you know, we've had many um, Regent College uh, professors come and do different conferences. We've had Ian Proven here, George Guthrie, Daryl Johnson, Gordon Smith, lots of people, uh, Bruce Walkie over the years. And so um, just as we get started, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite a representative from Regent College, uh, Patricia Sito. Do you want to come up and, and say a few words? Let's, uh, let's welcome Patricia. Good evening, everybody, and thank you very much. And thanks to David and his team. Um, we had just started discussing about possibly having uh, somebody from Regent come and speak on a topic of interest to uh, of uh, Coquitlam Alliance. And David said, "Well, you know, I'm doing a series this fall on ten tough questions." And I said, "Okay." And so we started talking about it. And then, sort of, as discussions happened between David and David. Uh, it was kind of decided that they were going to talk about the subject of providence. And I said, that's perfect. It is something that David has taught on at Regent, uh, a course. And um, so we we're just really thrilled to actually be here to be able to share a little bit more about what we kind of try to dive in depth in theological studies. Tough questions and things that are not easily answered just by reading the Bible. Reading the Bible is important understanding, but actually answering questions that oftentimes are not easily um, answered on the surface is something that we really try to address at Regent. So anyway, so we're really thrilled about being here. Um, Just as a sort of um, give, just to give you some information, we have a little information table at the back and we do have for the people here, here at the actual uh, campus here, uh, we have a book draw that you can partake in. You do have probably on your uh, tables feedback sheets. So at the end, if you fill out the feedback sheet, fill out your information, uh, you can enter into a draw. The draw is actually for a set of two books. So this actual book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Love, <laughs> is by Kate Bowler, a professor at Duke University. And it's the book that David Robinson uses in his Providence class. So it's a reflective book that uh, he asks people to write an assignment on. So you might want to look at that. The other thing that is uh, also included with this is Common, 50 Reflections on Everyday Life. And this is actually uh, reflections from 50 different people who have graduated, attended Regent, taught at Regent, 
And so that's also included. There is also a bonus. For, as David Robinson is the R. Paul Stevens chair, we have the book, Work Matters, Lessons from Scripture by Paul Stevens, also available for as part of this book draw. And again, the common reflections as well. So two sets of draws available for people here. Now, for our friends on Zoom, you are not left out. You will also be able to enter a draw as well. Um, Graham Hopstock Matson is online with you, and he is going to send you a link to that survey that you can fill out. And then we will do a draw, and you will get uh, a $50 Regent Audio gift card if you're drawn for that. Okay. So that's for our Zoom folks. So you also can participate in the draw. Excellent. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Well, it's great. I mean, with, uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Patricia. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting because back, I don't know if any of you remember this, but back in 2004, we had Paul Stevens here to uh, speak on work and vocation and all sorts of things. But that was a, a long, long time ago. But uh, for tonight, uh, this is great. David, I'm going to have you come on over here because uh, tonight we have uh, with us uh, Dr. David Robinson. And uh, as, as uh, Patricia was saying, he's the uh, R. Paul Stevens Assistant Professor of Marketplace Theology and Leadership. Um, David, he teaches Marketplace Theology, directs the Master of Arts in Leadership, Theology, and Society. He's a number of uh, publications in the area of ethics, um, in the area of... Um, while well, he's got this, this one book, A Christ and Revelatory Community and Bonhoeffer's Reception of Hegel, which I'm sure many of you have, have, have come across. Um, best part is uh, David's local. He's from Coquitlam, well, he's not from Coquitlam, but he lives in Coquitlam. And so that's kind of cool. And uh, pastored in Vancouver, is that right? Ottawa. In Ottawa, that's right, he pastored in Ottawa. Yeah, for, for, for a while. Uh, lives in Coquitlam with his wife, uh, Jolene, who works in communications and development, and their children, Naomi and Andrew. And so let's welcome David with us tonight. And it's fun to see a lot of our um, region alumni um, speaking out on, on, the, on the chat. Uh, my, my buddy Mike over there is, is in that region right now. And uh, yeah, there's a number of people in our church that are currently taking courses out region. Um, let me pray and we're just going to dive right in for uh, our conversation tonight. Lord, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. And we do pray that you would guide our conversation. Uh, that you would that this would not just be about interesting things that we can learn about and figure out, but this would be transformative and hit to the heart. And so we invite you to speak into our hearts. May all that we discuss tonight intersect with the you know specific things that we're wrestling with in our own lives. And so we come before you with a posture of receptivity. We're open to what you have to say to us. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Soften hard hearts and grant us the courage to respond to whatever you say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, tonight, um, tonight, I'm just going to turn this a bit because I think people want to see you more than me, David, there. 
Here, I'll, I'll scoot over. Yeah, okay. that's their view. So, yeah. So it means we have to be really friendly with each other. Yes. Um, so tonight, um, our our uh, our focus tonight is the question of God's sovereignty, God's providence, and how that works with the decisions we make day in and day out. So, talk about a hard question, a difficult question, but an important question. Now, this is an area that uh, David had studied quite a bit about. And so the question, the first question I have is why the interest in God's sovereignty and providence? What got you into this, this whole field? Thanks very much, uh, David. It's good to be here with you all and great to see such a good turnout. I think uh, education is so important in churches and I really admire your commitment to it. So thanks for coming. Um, I mean, it may have to do my interest. It, it probably goes back to growing up in Saskatchewan, where we had real winters that you had to live through. And I had an early morning paper route, so there was a lot there. Um, I have thought about it as a Christian throughout my life, really, but my more recent interest comes from reading a letter that was written in prison, written from prison. And it was by a man who was involved in some resistance activities. He lived under a dictatorship. And for a time, he fled the country, thought about starting a new life as a refugee, but ultimately felt like he had to go back because it was his country and it's what he'd been given to do. And so he got involved in these activities and was arrested eventually and was imprisoned and wrote a letter where he talked about learning in life when to resist and when to submit. And he wasn't talking about political authority. He was talking about learning when to resist and when to submit to your own fate, to your own sense that your the light, the course of your life has been predetermined or set out before you. Do you ever have that feeling? The country that you're from, the family that you've been given, maybe the work that you're in, the personality temperament you have, you know, there's there's kind of a course of life that gradually emerges for you. And are there times when you work against that? Are, are there times when you try to do something different, break out? Uh, or are there times where you go with the flow of what's been given for you? And he said, I'm trying to sort out when to resist, when to submit. And most importantly, that can feel a bit impersonal sometimes, the way your life is headed. Uh, it's not quite clear. He said, I want to learn how to find the you in the midst of that, I want to find I want to find God. I want personal encounter with God in the midst of the course of a life. Mm. And so that letter had a big effect on me. I wanted to think more about that. That was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was a German theologian and pastor, uh, in his letters and papers from prison. Mm. And that was the original title of that book, actually, Resistance and Submission. Mm. So that uh, that got this started. That was probably about ten years ago. But I've also lived my life as a Christian. I've tried to be faithful and I've uh, been through a period, I was laid off from my job at one point and through a period of unemployment because of financial difficulty that the organization had. And that's something a lot of people are facing today. Um, financial constraints coming in, not necessarily having security in terms of their job, in terms of their business. And so questions of providence for Christians, for other people of faith come to the fore. And I wanted to study more deeply so I could engage those questions uh, with them and with us tonight. That's very cool. 
Well, I mean, so tonight we shaped um, our our evening's conversation around one question. And it's a question, um, well, it's actually a statement that I hear quite often, and maybe you do too. And it's, it's usually in light of something that's been difficult or something that's inexplicable. And the response usually goes something along the lines is like, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Um, and a lot of people would say everything happens for a reason or a variation along those lines. What do you think people mean by that? Thanks, that's a good question. I think that, I mean, people are, I am, we're trying to find meaning in life, we're trying to make meaning. We use our reason, we use our intellect to try to discern what's going on. And so it's a very natural thing to say, especially in the light of something that seems really inexplicable. And it's a, and it's an attempt to reach for comfort, words that maybe comfort the person themselves. They're going through a difficult time. They remind themselves everything happens for a reason. There's got to be some good in this, or there's got to be some outcome that I'm yet to see. Or they're trying to comfort someone else, and so they say it to them. Now, we can talk a bit about that because... I think there's a big difference in saying it to oneself uh, as opposed to saying it to someone else. Mm. Um, but let me let me just say that uh, on the one hand, I think it's right to look for reasons in what happens, but I'd be very careful with saying everything. I mean, you may want to ask me if I actually believe this, so that, that I'll say for another time. But on the question of why people would say it to someone else, um, let me just say that Job's friends in the Bible, I think, are underrated. Um, these are people who, you know, the book of Job, Job is going through this incredible suffering. And these people come and they sit with them for seven days, right, quietly. And then they start to speak and people blame them for what they say, right? They get it wrong. They're miserable comforters in Job's words. And I think that's right to some extent, because they're in some ways trying to find a reason behind Job's suffering. And Job's suffering seems to be inexplicable. There seems to be something that's not quite answered by the end of the book. God's speeches don't give a reason, it seems to me. There's something inexplicable to his suffering, and they're coming to him saying, here are the reasons. You know, think about this. They're using wisdom from Proverbs. They're finding various ways to give an angle on what's happening to Job. And Job keeps saying, that's not it. That's not it. The reason I think they're underrated, though, I think that they're wrong in a lot of respects, and that's what God says at the end, and that's what Job says at the end. But notice how they stick with him. They come to him, first of all, when he's suffering, and they stay with him. For those of you that have been through a period of grief or illness or something like that, you might know how you can feel kind of ignored by people or given a wide berth. These are friends that come to him. They sit with him, and then they're willing to try this work of finding meaning, making meaning out of the experience. And they disagree pretty strongly, but they stick together. And at the end, when everything gets restored for Job, they're there too at the end. So they're pretty remarkable friends, actually. I want to give them a bit of a counter-reading here as those kinds of people that say, this is happening for a reason. I feel bad for always, like, <laughs> making fun of them in sermons and uh that's fair enough I mean, there's good reason to make fun of them but i just wanted to give a counter, counter proposal there so 
So let, let's look at the question. So does everything happen for a reason? Like if somebody has said that to you, well, you know, David, you need to realize, and it'd be quite funny to hear somebody say this to you, you know that everything happens for a reason. How would you respond? I would say that a lot happens for a reason, but not everything. I think that for two reasons. One is the presence of evil in the world. Mm -hmm. I think that there's something that's that can't be understood about evil. It can only be rejected. So if you try to probe too far into what evil is and look into a uh, an act, maybe it's a um, maybe it's a genocide, maybe it's um, a situation of terrible abuse. You can you can see some things that might lead to it. You might see some social, economic, political factors at play, psychological factors. But there's something about evil that I think really eludes our attempts to find reason in it. It just needs to be rejected, ultimately. Mm. So that's one thing. The other thing is the presence in the world of what we call a surd element. The word is S-U-R-D, surd. And that's the idea that there's a there's a certain chaotic element that's uh, at work in the world. If you think back to Genesis 1, you can think of the formless and void into which God creates. And God creates order and God creates habitable space for life. can flourish and then he fills them with life. And creation is good and very good. But there still is, I think, this somewhat threatening element, this chaotic element that's at hand. And in the prophets, you get reference to this sometimes. God is doing the work of order, but there also is something that um, threatens that order and that God needs to work with. We'll talk about natural disasters a little bit later, mm -hmm. but one needs to take account, I think, of that as well. So those are two aspects that I think go a bit beyond um, reason. It's worth our taking, putting reason to bear. But biblically speaking, that's that's not exactly how it's put. I think the verses that are probably closest to that would be Romans 8.28 on the one hand, which I fully stand with. I mean, I'm for the authority of the Bible, and the only reason I would question this phrase is if it wasn't entirely biblical. Romans 8.28 um, says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's a slightly different term. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that there's reason in everything. It's, first of all, God working good, not necessarily intelligibility. God works the good in all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So it's a more, a more focused promise there. Uh, the last thing, the other verse that I think probably has a bearing here is, you know, you'll hear sometimes people say, when I see God, when I'm in heaven, then I'll know. You hear, have you heard people say that? Then I'll know the reason for this. And I think that that probably comes from 1 Corinthians 13, the passage on love. And then it, at the end, it says, then I will know fully as I am fully known. Mm -hmm. I personally take that to be more a relational knowledge of God than a kind of God imparting omniscience to us so that we then know the reason behind everything that's happened in our lives and in world history for that matter. 
So I don't think that's promised to us biblically. Uh, feel free to come back to me on that yeah. in the Q and A, but that's yeah. not that's not my sense that I'll know the reason behind everything in the age to come. I think I'll know God relationally fully. I think I'll know more than I know now, but I don't think I'll know that everything happened for a reason. Yeah, I'm just gonna add one more question to that because I think sometimes when people does everything happen for a reason they're trying to make of chance um can you comment on that as well like and so I mean the example that comes to mind um it's it's a horrific example but there's a, a young boy and there's just there's a there's a stray bullet and it, it hit him and he was from a church just down the street and they had the funeral here but I remember people saying because it, it was just if he was there one second before, one second after, it wouldn't have happened. And so the, the question of chance, trying to make sense of tragedies that seem not so much, you know, with, with you know, tsunamis or things like that, but it just seems so random. Um, and so they comfort themselves with this idea that, you know, okay, everything happens for a reason. Can you comment to that? Sure. So you may know the name Thomas Aquinas. He's a theologian from the 13th century, and he had a very strong view of God's providence. We're going to define providence, sovereignty in a moment. So we haven't done that yet, but we will. So Aquinas uh, gave one of the classical expressions of providence and claiming that God is the primary cause of all things, and then talking about the number of secondary causes you get within creation. Uh, with which God works. But the reason I use Aquinas is because he has a very strong view of God's providence, but he still reads the book of Ecclesiastes, where it says time and chance happen to all. Mm. And so he acknowledges the place of chance yeah. in the created world as we know it. So I think that chance is a factor and that providence doesn't somehow rule out chance ever happening. There are some views of providence like that, that say God's design means that chance isn't a factor. But I think, along with Aquinas and others, that chance is actually a factor. Wow, that's, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember Aquinas writing that. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about sovereignty and providence. God, we talk about God's sovereignty over all things. We talk about God's providence. Do they mean the same thing? Are they different? And how are they different? Great question. Yes, they are different, um, but they overlap. So let me start, though, with the origins of the term providence, because providence can sound a bit maybe abstract, maybe a bit intimidating, maybe a bit settled, like it's a noun. Uh, but it's actually, it comes out of a verb, provides, God provides. And it comes out of a story where a, a man and his son are out for a walk. And the man has this ominous sense that only one of them is going to come back. And it's bizarre. It's kind of challenging his notion of who God is. This is his only son, promised son. And he's perplexed. And his son starts to pick up on the weirdness of this particular hike. And he starts asking some awkward questions. And his dad, like many of us dads, I have two kids, six and two. My son's asking a lot of why questions right, right now. Doesn't know what to say. So he says, the Lord will provide. 
And ultimately, they do both come home from this hike. They both come back from the mountain. Um, miraculously, God did provide. And so the man names the mountain, the Lord will provide. And it's from that story, Genesis 22, Abraham and his son, that we get the term providence. So the, the translation of that in the Latin gives us the term that underlies providence. But it comes from a very existential situation where there's a man with his son and he's questioning what God has called him to do. And he promises his son, God will provide, God stakes everything on that. And God comes through position we're often in when we reach out for God to provide. We don't know where the next paycheck is coming from. We don't know what we're going to provide for our kids uh, in the midst of real financial certainty, uncertainty or in the midst of a terrible war. And yet we say the Lord will provide or we fear that from them. Sometimes the kids tell us. So just that first in terms of this being on the ground real life teaching. Let's though talk about sovereignty and providence as these larger terms. So providence as a body of teaching about how God preserves, accompanies, and governs all that is. So providence is about how God preserves, accompanies, and governs all that is. So God preserves everything. That means God holds it all in being. As it says in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. Or in Hebrews, uh, Christ upholds all things through the power of his word. So God preserves everything in being. Existence itself, why is there existence? Why is there something rather than nothing? God. Secondly, God accompanies everything. There's very close presence that God has with all of creation. You get this in the Psalms. In Psalm 104, for example, it talks about God providing food for the animals as if by hand. You know, there's close accompaniment. And this, of course, reaches its climax in the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So God accompanies. And then God governs. So this is, this is what's closest to sovereignty here. So God is sovereign. Uh, God rules. There's, a, there's political imagery to this when it comes to Isaiah, for example, talking about God enthroned above the heavens and yet caring for a people in exile. So all three of those, and I say all that is, so not just human affairs, this is, this is the entire cosmos. So that's what providence is, preserves the companies and governs. And I would take sovereignty to be the governing part. So that's how they relate. Sovereignty is a part of providence, but it's not everything. But I think people often take it as everything. It's like providence is about how God governs your rules, but they forget that it's about how God holds everything in being and then how God accompanies everything in being through its life. And that's really important to keep in mind. If you don't have those two, God can seem like a distant ruler, uh, someone uncaring. 
-hmm. But if you actually keep in mind that God is giving everything existence at every moment, and God is accompanying everything along its life course, cast all your cares on the Lord for he cares for you, that kind of language, um, then you get a proper picture of the Lord who provides. Mm. So it's in, well, okay, in light of that, then, I mean, we got two, 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 at least two things come to mind. One is, you know, God's providence, provision, accompaniment, governing um, over things like um, natural disasters. So when you think about, you know, back in 2004, there was a, a, a tsunami. Uh, that killed over 200,000 people uh, around in and around Indonesia and Thailand. Um, so how, because we also believe God is good, right? How do we, how do we understand that? Or how do we even begin to talk about God's providence and his sovereignty in the face of just such a horrific disaster, right? So that's one. So one would be natural. I'll get to the other one in a second. So, how would, you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. I'm counting the questions here. I think this is maybe six or something. So once we get to 10, then I'm done, right? <laughs> These are good questions and important ones. So natural disasters, I think, in insurance contracts are still called acts of God. And I think that's very, it's quaint and it's misleading. Because... For two reasons. One is that it, it associates God with the destructive element, but not the preservative constructive element, right? So what about the local politicians and the first responders and all those folks that help make disasters less worse than they could be otherwise, right? Think about the flooding that happened in the Fraser Valley a year ago, the heat dome, right? Who was there to try to save life, who was trying to pull the animals out, right? Who was opening homes for people who were without their homes. Why are those not associated with acts of God? Local churches that were, you know, doing the work. So I think it's terrible that God is associated with a natural disaster, sending a natural disaster, but not <laughs> the governance structures and the first responders that are you know, preserving life and doing the kinds of things that we know God does. So talking about God's goodness, I think, yeah, where do we associate goodness in the midst of this? So that's the first thing to say. Uh, the other thing to say is when we call them acts of God, we're sometimes not, um, we're not really showing that we actually know quite a bit about how these things are caused. So there was a, there was a time when natural disasters, and you get this biblically as well, they're associated directly to God. And I think that there's warrant for that. And I think that we're, we're covering that notion in important ways. But since that time, we've also got a lot more scientific understanding about how these things happen, about the movement of tectonic plates, for example, that type of thing, as well as climate change, and as well as human roles in climate change. And so we now have to also think about how natural disasters can be, to some extent, human-caused. And that needs to be taken account of, too. Uh, it can't just all be attributed to God. Hmm. 
So those are some preliminary questions, but if someone wants to come back later on that, we can talk more about natural disasters. It's an important one. It's one that we're locally facing as well when it comes to heat dome, atmospheric river, flooding, that type of thing. Will there be tectonic plates in the new heavens and new earths? I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> Somebody once asked me that question. I'm like, I have no idea. Uh, Price, that count. Yeah, that doesn't count towards the 10. That's just like a part A. Right? <laughs> you don't have okay. to answer that. <laughs> okay, well, okay, so let's let's look at the other side then, because how do we understand God's providence, his sovereignty in light of human decisions? So where is God's providential care, his governing, his his his, his sovereignty? in light of the war in Ukraine. So how would you how would you look at that? Right, that's a good question. It does it does bring up the importance of sovereignty in human affairs that we have a relative sovereignty given by God. So you think about the importance of sovereignty to a nation and that's part of what makes this war so terrible is that Ukraine is a sovereign nation and they're being attacked and that sovereignty is something that we recognize as a community of nations so in terms of god's own action in this i have a limited perspective because i'm not in ukraine for example um, so i think it's important to hear from ukrainians how they perceive it and I think we'll get into we'll get into prayer in a later question. So I won't talk about how to pray in wartime now, but we can talk about that during the prayer section. Um, but the one thing I'll say is that I think that God is is very active in wartime, and I think that wartime is a situation in which it's for us as Christians to try to discern the times as best we can understand the situation and pray meaningfully into it and that can mean we pray for resistance efforts right in this case i think that's warranted that's the way i'm praying about it is to support ukrainian resistance to what's happening uh and so on but this gets um it gets difficult and we have limited perspective when we're not in that uh exact situation hmm. Well, okay, let's get to the question of prayer. Oh, but sorry, let me, okay. let me oh, yeah. <laughs> that insofar as providence or divine sanction is being invoked mm -hmm. for a particular side, that sometimes needs to be challenged. In this case, I think it does. So the way that the Orthodox Church has aligned itself with the invasion, for example, right, and given a certain divine sanction to it, I think that Christians have to stand against that. And there has been a declaration that's been written that I've signed in on and so on that's rejected this okay. attribution of divine favor on the invasion effort. Hmm. I think it was that the, the, the civil war and how you, had, it, you know, God was on both sides in the north and the south and in terms of the language that was being used mm -hmm. to support uh, the North and, and to support the South. Um, and this, so in, in all this, um, if God is sovereign, if he knows all things and he knows about the war in Ukraine, he knows about the global pandemic, he knows that the Toronto May police will win the Stanley Cup this year, he knows all things, right? Not that funny, it could happen. <laughs> um, he knows all things. 
And yet we read that we're called to pray. And so what are we doing when we're praying? Are we changing God's mind or are we just trying to get to know him better? And so when somebody's sick and we pray for healing, is it sort of like, well, you know, if it's your will, because it's really not going to make much of a difference. So what is the meaning of prayer in light of God's omniscience that he stands over all of history and he knows all things? This is worth two points. This is like a big question. Okay, great. Well, prayer is very important. It's one of the most powerful forces in our world. And I mean, it's so important that God prays. Do you know this? God prays. Romans 8, the Spirit intercedes. Hebrews, Jesus, our high priest, intercedes. So you have God involved in prayer. Prayer is not just human activity. It is human activity. It's real work, right? Those of you that are committed to prayer, you know it takes work. It takes focus. It takes understanding of situations and discernment. You're not alone in that work. The Spirit is praying in and through you. Jesus is interceding on your behalf. So prayer is a kind of activity in and with God. It's not just toward God. In terms of it being powerful, I think this is really important about the kind of God we serve. So God is not like a dictator who wants to arrogate power to themselves and weaken all potential centers of power that might threaten that power. God is not like that. And when dictators act like that, they're not acting like a God. They're acting like something quite different. Hmm. God's way of being omnipotent is to empower and to share power. And so that's what prayer is, I think. God empowering. God letting anyone, whatever your socioeconomic situation, um, whether you're employed or not, whatever your age, gender, you name it, you all have power to influence what's going on through prayer. You can appeal directly to God because God is a God who shares power and invites people into his activity in the world and invites people to understand what's going on. And that's where questions about the war in Ukraine and so on, they can be difficult to answer from the front of a room because so much takes individual discernment of what's going on and highly contextual discernment too. So prayer, absolutely an important part of providence and nothing about a doctrine of providence should dampen attempts to pray. Prayer should be animated and enlivened by learning more about God's providence. So, okay, so practically, uh, I have a friend of mine who's got cancer. And so as I lean in, I pray. How, how am I participating in, in God's power? Like, I, like uh, unpack that a little bit more. Uh, like, how, if, if God knows whether or not he's going to survive, um, what am I doing when I'm praying? 
Well, God may know that this friend is going to survive, but the means uh, through which God has ordained that that friend will survive might just be your prayer. Okay. Oh, awesome. And you don't know that, but you're crucial. You're a part of it. You're a part of the way in which God wants to preserve that life. So pray for it. Mm -hmm. No, that's good. Well, let, me also add yeah. <laughs> let me also add that prayer. So much of what facing cancer and other nasty illnesses, um, so much of what's important there isn't necessarily an outcome or winning the battle. And I say this as someone who's currently grieving. Uh, I lost my father three weeks ago to a nasty set of illnesses, including the cancer. And, you know, you pray that they be healed. He was sick for two years and died at 69. And a lot of people tell me how young. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to lose him. Um, he, he couldn't struggle anymore. You know, he said, this is, this is the end. And my prayer for him to be healed, it wasn't, it wasn't answered in him being recovered from the illness. But God gave us presence with each other, and God was present with us. And that was so important. That was so meaningful. And it wasn't because I could say to him, this is happening for a reason or something like that. I couldn't kind of give an explanation for why it was happening. And I mean, I just taught this course on providence. Like I finished the class in July of uh, this year, and then he went by ambulance to hospital the next week, and he'd been in hospital and hospice since, and then died three weeks ago. So I had no you know, answer to give him, but I was present as a son, and I put my hand on his, put my hand on his head, could help him up to the washroom. I could do these various things, and that that was that was what Providence taught me to do, and that was God. I think exercising care for my father through me and through the incredible hospice mm. staff and all mm. kinds of people. So mm. I can't remember what the question. No, was, but that's but, no, but I didn't know that's really good. But this is when we have when we're facing cancer or other horrible illnesses or when we live with chronic illness or something like that uh it's not about you know an abstracted answer uh the scriptures are important in this i read scripture to him a lot we talked about the bible but so much has to do with presence and accompaniment that's yeah. the accompaniment we're talking about and that is something that again god empowers people to do for one another hmm. you, you wonder if that's just in in our, our preoccupation especially within the modern world on outcomes if that that overrides the importance of of, of of the of the journey and the process in the midst of it um no, that's really helpful um, yeah, i think that's right outcomes and, and a kind of technological omnipotence too and this idea that an illness and a death is a kind of defeat 
for those powers we have now, right. modern medicine and so on. And so cancer, Kate Bowler talks about this in her book, cancer is always a battle, you know, and you don't just learn to live with it. You, you, you can't just almost even embrace a condition. Yeah. Like I live with a condition, a chronic pain condition. It's spinal inflammation and I've had it for years and I've asked for it to be taken away and it hasn't been. Um, and it's a tough one for an academic because I got to sit a lot. But it's something that I've learned to kind of almost embrace. It's become a part of me. I know I know the ways it'll flare up. I know the different difficulties that it'll bring. Um, but you kind of, yeah, you learn to live with and you learn to seek God's faithfulness in it, right? Um, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so for any of you who have chronic pain or chronic condition of any kind, um, Providence is about God's accompaniment in that and provision in that. No, it's not just a question of whether I'm healed or not, you know, even though I believe in healing and I believe in the power of prayer healing. So much of it has to do with, yeah, God's ongoing provision every day. Yeah. And sometimes every day is all you can all you can count. Yeah. No, that's good. I mean, in in so many ways in our in our culture prayer like everything else becomes the tech technology becomes a te an, an instrument and and when it doesn't have the outcomes that we desire our conclusion is prayer doesn't work or god does not work or god or or, or i didn't do the technique right maybe i should got more people praying and if if, if i get that critical number god's going to pay attention and listen and yeah. so it often becomes a technique doesn't it mm -hmm. um no, that's really helpful. Um, how small does God's providence go? Does meaning does He really care about providing that parking spot for me at Costco? Like, does He really care about that? When I lose my car keys, it's God saying, "You know, hang on with all the stuff going on in the world. Let's help David find his car keys." Like, it's but. But we also know that his love is so infinite that he can love us finitely and he knows the details of our lives. So how do you, how, how would you respond to that? Great. I'd say first, you know, cast all your cares on God where he cares for you. There is a sense of close personal attention that God has to, to everyone. At the same time, Jesus teaches us a certain priority too, right? He says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added. And there's a way in which, um, if we're if we're praying for all these minute little provisions, right, that um, will make our lives easier or more comfortable, but we're not praying the big prayers for God's kingdom, um, for lives to be changed, for societal transformation, and leaving the details up to Him, you know, <laughs> in terms of the little things I need, then we probably need to rethink our priorities, right? So yeah, I want to say both. On the one hand, God does care for little details, but on the other hand. Uh, we need to prioritize our prayers, I think, and, and really focus on what's most important to God in Scripture and what relational needs we have and let God deal with the, uh, the little things. Okay, no, that's good. So the other question that, that, that uh, I have for you has to do with how a lot of people uh, view God and, and view the story of their lives. They... they, they, they they view their life as walking with God and that God has a plan. Apparently the most popular verse now is no longer John 3, 16. It's Jeremiah 29 because 
for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, and it's all about me and my plans. Um, so the question is, is people see themselves or God having a plan for them. What does that mean? Does that mean that God um, has that one perfect person that I'm going to marry? Um, that God has that one particular just right job for me, given the way he's created me and given the way he's orchestrated my life to this point, that this is a job for sure that he has for me. Like, how, how does how does God um, shape our life? That This picture of a blueprint or God's plan for our life, is, is that a helpful one or is there a different way we should look at our lives? I'm reminded of a... What Eugene Peterson used to say, Eugene Peterson, who taught at Regent, who translated the message, he said that with him and his wife, he used to think that he could marry any number of people. But as they went on in their relationship, in their marriage relationship, he realized it could really only have been her. But he said she had the opposite. Um, <laughs> She thought it could only be him, but as they went on in their marriage, she realized <laughs> it could have been any number. <laughs> so it's a good question whether God has a blueprint for us, whether that has to do with finding a spouse or finding the job. I think blueprint language, it maybe doesn't feel living enough, right? Blueprints are for buildings and um Buildings have a life of a kind, but we're dealing with something quite a bit more dynamic in terms of humans and relationships. Uh, I mean, I think it's 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 got to be carefully discerned, and I think plan language has its drawbacks. We can go into that more a bit more if you like, but let me talk about calling. Let me talk about job in this respect, whether God has a plan for us to have a particular job. So on the one hand, I teach in marketplace theology, and I think it's, it's one of the great gifts of the Reformation and of Martin Luther's teaching that we don't only talk about pastors having callings by God, but every Christian having a calling by God to do a specific work that they've been given to do. And that can be homemaking, and that can be industry, labor, business. That can be the whole range of different types of things that God has called and equipped them for specific work. And that there's not a hierarchy of holiness where um, the callings that are clerical, that is pastors and, and church leaders and missionaries, are the most important ones. So I think that they have a particular dignity, and I'm not meaning to put that down, Dave, but no, uh, there is a kind of raising up of the vocations of Christians mm -hmm. throughout in every kind of workplace. So that's a great thing. And I think that, yeah, to an extent, we can say God has a particular plan, but the, the, the one drawback to plan language and one of the things that we need to take stock of as a difference from the Reformation era is how dynamic people's lives are today mm -hmm. and how transitory careers can often be. And so if you get too stuck in the notion that God has a plan for me for a specific job, and then that doesn't work out or something else happens, I sort of had this happen to me. I moved across the country 
to take a position that I felt God was very strongly calling me towards. And I still believe that. But at the same time, I got laid off from it a few years in quite abruptly and then had a year of unemployment as I tried to, you know, reinvent and do something quite different. I'm now doing something different. I see a continuity between the two. But if I just if I'd been and I mean, I struggled for a while in that year. I said, well, God called me out here to do this in a, a fairly sacrificial way. And now it's it's gone. Right. And I've got to do something different. So you may feel called into business. That business may not work out. And you got to try something different. So how do you understand God's providence in that? It's got to be dynamic. Mm -hmm. And that's where plan language or blueprint language sometimes doesn't have that dynamism to it of an actual relationship with God that has different seasons and may have different expressions or outworkings in terms of the kind of work you're doing yeah. for God and with God. I find also with, with, with blueprint language is that when something goes wrong, you immediately think it was my fault. I've stepped out of the plan and now it's too late. And I see a lot of people just kind of walking away and saying, well, I made that, I should never have made that decision because obviously it was not God's will. And now, well, no wonder my life is such a mess. And so you can, they can blame it on the fact of, you know, rather than seeing it in this in this dy dynamic way. Um, well, so how, how would you, how would you discern vocation? I love the word vocation because it's from the word calling, right? Yeah. The actual word. So how, if, you know, we got a lot of younger people here um, and a lot of people who are not so young, I won't point you out, but, but you're, you're transitioning maybe work, right? Um, so how do you discern vocation? Like what, what are some questions that you ask in order to know what am I, what, what does God want me to do with my life? That's a great question. One of them would be, do you, I mean, okay, I'll say this and then I'll qualify it a bit. Do you love to do this? Mm -hmm. um, just because you want something doesn't mean God doesn't want you to do it. So desire can be something that God is shaping in you and drawing out in you and can be towards a specific kind of work that God is bringing for you. That would be one thing. Another would be that you discern it in communities. So you find out, you know, what your friends identify in you, what your, maybe your supervisor, if you're doing an internship, discerns in you, what your family discern in you. I mean, I think that vocation is something to be communally discerned mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, so there can be something about, you know, desire in a sanctifying life in, in a prayerful, discerning kind of way. Uh, then there's the community discernment piece that's around you as well. Uh, and then there's probably just trying it out and seeing how it goes and not necessarily being hung up on this being successful right away. Sometimes it's going to take trial and error. It's going to take a few attempts. You can't read too much off of early success or early failure. I think that those other factors, communal discernment, uh, God's own leading and voice and prayer and uh, an understanding of your own desire for something all continue to be factors. Kind of a related question, but uh, I just it just came to mind. Um, it's just the important... <laughs> What is the importance of work um, 
in the Christian life? Uh, and I, the, let me situate the question because since the pandemic, we have a lot of people who, um, you know, the, the whole quiet quitting and the uh, n- number of people leaving the workforce. Um, how important is work within the, 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 the Christian life? Like, what is the role of work in the Christian life? Can you just briefly, I know it was kind of outside of this, but I, I just thought while we're talking about work, um, if you could address that. Yeah, my wife and I were just talking about quiet quitting. And of course, there was this language of the great resignation a while ago where yeah. people really rethought right what they were doing and made moves uh, towards new employment. Jesus says, my father is always at work and I too am working. And uh, we obviously have Genesis 1 where God works, right, in creation and rests on the seventh day. And that becomes a kind of uh, pattern for us to also live out. And so I think work is highly significant as the, as the image of God. Humans work um, because God works. Mm-hmm. And we've been given the opportunity to work in and for God. Okay, just as a fun follow-up, what what is from a Christian perspective? What does retirement mean? Well, retirement's a chance to step back from the remunerative employment that you've been doing for a while to do the next thing. And I don't think that work can be limited to what you're paid for or what you have a title for. For example, uh, homemaking is work of a kind, right? And there are a number of different types of labor that aren't, aren't often recognized officially or um, to the degree that they should be or paid to the degree that they should be, right? So I think work takes various forms and I think retirement is an opportunity to pursue different types of it uh, if one is so inclined. No, that's good. No, thanks. Um, So back to marriage. Does God know who I'm going to marry? Oh, so there's not that one person, right? It's not that one perfect person. It could be, <laughs> this is recorded. Oh, your wife might hear this. Up. Well, look, I mean, I think I, I was I was single for a long time. And I think that, uh, you know, being single is a full life before God. And so I don't think that it requires completion by someone else. And so many people will want a spouse, but some people won't. And some people also may want one, but one doesn't come. And so I think that, God wants, I mean, Jesus, Jesus himself didn't marry, and um, he was a was a full human being, as we say in the creed. So I don't think that the either the one person or marriage itself is necessarily something God has planned for each person. Um, and that's where, yeah, a little more dynamism around it probably matters. And then also sometimes, you know, you, you date someone, you think they're the one, and they just don't think you're the same, right? And <laughs> you've got to you've got to revise your your understanding of this. So that's where that's where plan language can can be a little that's right a little problematic, I suppose. Yeah, when you think it's God's plan and they don't, right? Which is always that awkward conversation with it's a tough right? conversation. <laughs> God told me that we were no didn't tell him. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about. Um, so I'm going to just hit you maybe just a couple more questions. Now, you cyber friends and you incarnate friends, if you have some questions that you want to ask, some follow-up questions, start preparing them because in a, in a couple of minutes, we're going to open it up to Q&A. So 
I'm sure there's some burning questions, so make sure you have them. And same with you guys online, you can just put them in the in the chat. Um, one of the questions that, that I have is, is there is this assumption, though, in the Christian life that, you know what, right from the get-go, I've done everything to please God. I've followed his ways. I've followed his commandments. I kept myself pure before. Uh, I hoped to get married, but that didn't work out. But I've done everything right. If I continue to do everything right, will not things go well? Like, is that is that not what the Bible teaches us? That when we do things according to God's way, then our way should be good. Is, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's a very desirable outcome too, right? And it's it's there in Proverbs. I mean, there's so much in Proverbs about um, a wise life and good outcomes. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? And he will make your, your path straight. And so I think that there's something biblical in that, but they're also alongside Proverbs, you've got this Leviathan of a book called Job, which is even longer, right? It's even longer. And it's about how things don't go right for a person who is socially righteous. Job is Job is it when it comes to doing it right. I mean, it goes into great detail about his faithfulness. So I don't think we can expect that from God. Jesus too didn't have an easy life. I mean, he had a he had a public ministry that was shorter than our master of divinity degree or regent, right? I mean, it was very short. He didn't have a place to lay his head as he said it. And he met a pretty nasty execution in the end. And so I think that we need to be really careful about saying, well, if we're faithful, things should go well for us. I think that that gets into prosperity gospel territory, which is... Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, prosperity gospel is the idea that um, your, your strength of faith will lead to the, the kind of the, the strength of your faith correlates to your material prosperity or health prosperity or however you want to you want to mm-hmm. define prosperity. And I think this is a really problematic view. Uh, and I'll probably just refer you here to the book that Patricia mentioned earlier by Kate Bowler called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Before that, Kate Bowler wrote a book called Blessed, which it had a big bejeweled cross on the cover. And it was a history of the prosperity gospel in America. So she's she's a Mennonite from Manitoba, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she she made a go. Any any Manitoba Mennonites here? Just Manitoba. Okay. <laughs> right on. Right on. Love it. So she, yeah, but she made a career of doing the doing the history of the prosperity gospel in America. So you can you can see the difference. And then she got stage four cancer, and she talks in the book about how she how that's received, both from her Mennonite uh, friends back home and this prosperity gospel network she's developed in doing her research, and how they both responded to it. But she in the book is able to say, look, I, I, I studied the prosperity gospel and some of us have kind of cartoonish pictures of what the prosperity gospel is. But she said, you know, deep down, I actually kind of had a bit of an implicit prosperity gospel myself because I wanted to have a good career and make some success as an academic. And I wanted to marry and have a have a child, you know, and I got all those things. And I kind of thought that that's just what hard, hard work 
faithful living, that's kind of what you do. And then she realized it could all be taken away. And she deals quite candidly with that realization that she, in a way, was kind of assuming certain things, that she'd lived past her 40s, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we can kind of get into our own entitlement a bit that way. We're faithful Christians, right? We're, um, we're studying God's word. We're doing God's service. So I expect I'll be able to live into retirement, you know. My father was a very faithful man. He worked hard. He studied scripture all the time, you know. He was doing it all, and he, he died early. He thought he'd live a long life. And fortunately, he didn't subscribe to the prosperity gospel. He was able to say, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is something I accept in God's providence that has happened to me. Mm. And uh, we lamented it together, but nevertheless... It's the kind of thing that can happen to anyone. Mm. Why do you think it's quite weak, especially in the West? This, this, so no, sorry, the prosperity gospel is very strong. But why do you think this, this, um, or, you know, theology of suffering um, is so lacking, especially in the West? I don't know. I mean, we're relatively prosperous. We have very advanced medical technology. We've removed death from view in a lot of ways, aside yeah. from grotesque holidays like Halloween. That's <laughs> uh, true. You know, yeah, we try not to think about death. We, we really try to downplay suffering and promote health. And I mean, out, out in Vancouver, right, Lower Mainland, that's, that's such an important part of your social status, too, is health and uh uh, whether that's that's diet, whether that's food, whether that's exercise and a certain, you know, regiment that you you hold out. So absolutely, I think it's 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 very important, therefore, to talk about suffering. And I'm, I'm glad that you're going to do that later in this course. Mm -hmm. Cool. So let's let's uh, we're just going to shift gears. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about. Um, about signs. <laughs> Sometimes I'll, I'll talk to, to Christians and they'll be like, you know what? I always thought I was to go and work in Mexico. And when I was driving home, I drove by a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> and I went in and I had Mexican food and they spoke Spanish to me. Um, and so... It's just it's just very clear because I, it was on my mind that that you know I should go to Mexico and so this is clearly a sign that God is wanting me to go there. Okay, now that's over the top, but does God give us signs? And if so, how do we know if they're a sign from God and not just you know us looking for a confirmation for what we already want to do? It's a good question to ask whether something is just a confirmation of what we already want to do. And that's something to, to keep in mind when it comes to vocation as well, career, that kind of thing. Is God really calling me this? It's just something. So I think that's a good criterion. When it comes to signs, I do think that there's something important about the difference between the Testaments here, Old Testament and New Testament. And I can't draw this too strongly, but... I'm reminded of a book by Bruce Waltke, who taught Old Testament region. I think he's taught here before at this church. But he, he has a book called Finding the Will of God. Is this a pagan notion? 
And he talks about Old Testament attempts at divination, at discovering the will of God through signs, through casting lots, etc. And from what I recall of his argument, it's, it's that in the New Testament, we move to a situation where the spirit has been poured out and we have this new um, indwelling of God as a community mm -hmm. where we can uh, make discernment together. And we don't need to be looking for external signs in various ways and trying to find the will of God through, through external signs. So feel free to come back to me on that. But I would say, generally speaking, we want to we want to look for the witness of the Spirit first and foremost. We certainly want to look for something that's in accord with Scripture as we're reading it in community. When it comes to external signs, though, um, I mean, it could be coincidence, but I'm also open to God speaking to someone in that way. I mean, God has variety of ways of speaking to people and i wouldn't want to limit from the outset the ways god can or cannot speak and so that that could be the case but i think i think you know in the case of the mexican restaurant and so on that should just be communally discerned and so i think it's good that this person was talking to you for example right talk to a friend talk to a pastor see if it, this this rings true in terms of the bigger life story and also the discernment of god's work in the world more generally and whether you know a sudden move to Mexico, what that does relationally, what happens, yeah. and so on. And, and it may well be that God is calling that, and sometimes God call, does call it to go. It's abrupt, it's disruptive, everything. I'm all for that. This is the Christian Missionary Alliance, right? So we're all for sending. <laughs> but you know, these things need to be discerned in relationship and in community. No, that's good. I, I remember a number of years ago somebody saying to me, um, you know, I'm just so excited that God is calling me up to this small town in northern BC. It's just very clear that this is what God is wanting me to do. I said, oh, really? So why, why are you going? It's like, well, they're going to pay me twice what I was getting here. Uh, I got like twice as much. And it's, and it's clearly a God thing um, because it's, it's good salary. I get a company car. And uh, it's, yeah, it's up north, but it's, it's going to be awesome. And, and so I just, I'm so thankful that God has called me to this and I said, oh, I said, what, what kind of churches are up there? Yeah, I haven't checked. I said, oh, okay, so what, what's, what's the spiritual community? Is there, do you know any? Yeah. Have you talked to anybody? No. And so you understand, like, you know, what, what was actually driving. But it's funny how we use the, the, the God language very, very easily. So you had said a few things. You talked about community, the importance of community. Friends who who love you but are not impressed with you. That was kind of people, that's right? A, that's a great definition. <laughs> um, you talked about uh, reading God's word uh, and being immersed in God's word. There's a lot of people who are leaving here tonight, and they are facing some important decisions. What what are some other ways that we can discern God's guidance, God's will for our life? Other ways, hey, beyond what I've said. Well, I think, or, or maybe the, just recap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. Is the, Let me recap what I said. Okay. Um, I mean, I think so. So to add to what I've said, I mean, I think right, daily immersion in Scripture, daily prayer, and prayer in a way that is is relational, right? That is about about God for who God is, and not for what God's going to give you in terms of a, an outcome or a decision right so it's this is so important you don't want to you don't want to have a kind of exploitative relationship with god where you're you're talking to god so that god gives you the guidance you need to get the kind of decision you want done so 
in times of great decision, sometimes it's good to just not really talk about the decision with God necessarily, but just learn more about who God is. Listen, not just for the answer you're seeking so earnestly about that specific decision, but for what else God may want to tell you that you're maybe missing because of the way that that decision has become so front and center for you. Maybe there's a relationship and a relational repair that you're missing um, that you have an opportunity to, to connect with. Maybe there's a neighbor who's lonely and in need that you can reach out to. There may be other things that God wants to make you aware of, which is partly why God hasn't given you the answer you want yet. But also, I think, to be confident that God will direct and guide and that if you really genuinely want to walk with God and seek God's will in the world, that God is confident you're going you're gonna to know that way. I mean, Jesus, in some ways, is more confident in us hearing his voice than we are. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Jesus is confident. Mm-hmm. We're often like, I'm going to miss this. I remember having this conversation a few times with my professors at Regent or with others, just being so angsty that I was going to miss God's way, you know? He was like, do you want to? Do you want to follow God's way? I said, I want it more than anything, you know, but I'm so afraid I'm going to miss it. He's like, do you really think that the God who loves you is going to let you miss the way when you want that more than anything? Mm, That's rich. So be confident that God will God will give you the way. And in the meantime, listen to God. Live with God. That's the purpose of our lives in many ways. You can do that now. You don't need the decision. You don't need the outcome. You have it now already. All you need and all you could want. Mm, that's cool. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to take a couple questions. Uh, there is a question that I just came across on, online. Um, there's a number of questions that we've got. Let me start with the uh, the second one I read. Um, is prayer differentiated by skill of the prayer? For example, when something bad happens because of a decision made, our natural instinct is that we did not pray enough or that we're not close to God as others seem to be more spiritual are we to believe that every bad outcome happens for a reason, namely that we did not try hard enough to pray, listen, um, or that we're poor of discernment? Um, you follow that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so this is online, so let me, let me turn to the camera here. Thanks for your, for your question. That's a really important one. And one that... Uh, I've thought through in the past, especially in light of disappointments I've had in life and times when I felt I could I could have prayed harder or should have prayed harder. So I think that any difficulty we face is an opportunity for us to think through how we're praying, how we're approaching things. It doesn't mean that we necessarily got it wrong. There are all kinds of reasons why things go awry. We talked about chance earlier. Um, There are so many greater factors at play than just our own spiritual faithfulness. And also God is gracious and God is not someone who just gives in accordance with the strength of our faith or whatever. That gets into too much, I think, of a transactional mode or it can. So I'd be cautious with that. 
So I guess my answer, generally speaking, is no here, that I don't think that um, a bad outcome or a, a less desired outcome means that we weren't skillful enough in our prayer. Mm. But it would really have to be case by case, I think, on this one. Mm. That's good. Um, questions? Yeah. Take care. Um, does praying at numbers make a substantial difference in comparison to when you pray for yourself or for one to one prayer? Oh, good. Does praying with others make a substantial difference? Yeah. Say? For example, if you are afraid of one person, um, then asking others to join in, that make a difference in comparison to you just praying that individual. Maybe just repeat the question. Yeah, so the question is whether it would make a difference if you're praying one-to-one, -one, if you bring others in, um, and in what way would it make a difference? So I think there are often moments where one-to-one -one prayer is really important and valuable, and you probably wouldn't want to bring other people in on it, especially if it's something where maybe you have, for example, a deep relational history with the person that you're drawing on, and you're able to pray just really intensely into the moment and out of a shared relational network of language and everything else. So one-to-one -one is appropriate. Another example might be if someone comes up after a church service to you or someone comes to you in counseling uh, and it's a situation of confidentiality and you want to pray, that's sufficient. You don't somehow need more people to get God's ear where you wouldn't get God's ear as a single prayer. So I think that one-to-one -one can be sufficient. That said, I think there are benefits to bringing others in. I think there are benefits to group prayer. And so if someone is taking on a new venture, if someone is um, needing healing, for example, I think there's a reason why, uh, you know, I think James, it talks about bringing the elders of the church. There, there's kind of more than one person. I think there can be a sort of strength in numbers that comes when you bring others in on it. It can be a way of um, showing your seriousness as a community, showing your commitment to the person. The person is surrounded, you know, has hands laid on them, maybe. There's great, I think, strength in that show as well. Mm. Yeah. I think, but the, the key is, is it, there's no necess necessary correlation between the number of people and the willingness of God to hear our prayer. Do you know, that's often what lies behind it's like well i'm not just going to pray for you i can get more people and the more people praying then god is going to hear our voice and then finally answer is that is here a little bit behind it your question yeah so the so if we corporate prayer is is, is better at getting through than than yeah individual prayer I think, I think I think it might be at certain times, and you can think of examples where the nation of Israel or the early church, they, you know, got everyone in on this, right? And you had times of communal fasting and prayer. So I wouldn't want to say that it's all the same, whether it's just one person who doesn't fast and a whole community that fasts and prays, you know, because I think biblically speaking, we have a lot of examples of corporate prayer like that. I think it does signal seriousness as a community. And that does matter to God. So, yeah, I would say that that um, can be important. So one of the questions we have online is, uh, it's, it's, it's a really good question as well. Uh, these are really great questions coming through. Uh, the question is this, is like, 
So if I want something, if, if, there, if my, this is my heart's desire, and so let's say um, one's heart's desire is to have a child, is to have a baby. Um, and so they pray. They pray, God, will you help me to have a baby? Um, to what degree do you act to influence that result, even to the point of, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, to do um, certain um, medical procedures to help you become pregnant or whatever happens to be, um, or go to a sperm donor or whatever. So to what degree do you do, do you try to influence your heart's desire that you're expressing through prayer? And at what point is this like, okay, you're, you're, you're almost being presumptuous or you're overriding what maybe God's answer to your mm -hmm. prayer. Right. So again, I think that the individual case is important. So I don't have a lot of detail on this one, so I, I yeah. can't speak to that specifically. But this is where, again, I think pastoral relationships, friendships, et cetera, are important for us saying, am I being presumptuous here, you know, or is it appropriate for me to go in and try IVF or something right. like that or a surrogate mother or something like that? So, you know, you need to you need to get other input on this because everyone's situation is unique. However, in general, what I can say is yes. So if if a couple is is struggling with infertility, if maybe there's been a miscarriage, if you're still wanting a child that's your own, so to speak, it then comes down to I think ethical discernment yeah. and saying what would be appropriate for us as a couple. And you might ask questions like. Is it is it right to to pay for um, an expensive medical procedure or have the system pay for it when there are children in need of adoption who um, don't have homes? And you need to think carefully about that. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying what are the social dynamics that are broader at play, and could that desire for a child be met by God in ways other than we necessarily were thinking? Mm -hmm. And maybe it is the form of an adoption, for example, mm -hmm. um, getting connected with a good Christian adoption agency, or, I mean, it doesn't have to be that, but I can think of some good agencies that would do this mm -hmm. and providing a home for someone who needs one. Yeah. Right. So That's I, I think that it gets into ethical discernment at that point, but the question of whether you're you know, moving too quickly, that's got to be spiritually discerned and yeah. probably discerned in community, because I don't think that you... You know, there's a template for saying, well, you have to give God at least five years. And if you're doing you don't have a natural childbirth at that point, then you can try different um, different procedures. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 that's where the community will be able to help discern what, you know, the, the nature and maybe even the tenor of your prayer. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What are you asking for? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very good. Um, but that's a very, I mean, it's a very very honorable desire and a very uh, human one. And so if that is your desire in pray for it and um, talk about it when others get support. Mm. Yeah, that's a great story from uh, Jennifer on there. Um, we have uh, time for one more question. So, and uh, boy, it better be a good one. No. <laughs> Any questions? These have been really good questions. Yeah, they have, they've all been awesome questions. Thanks so. everyone. Yeah. Oh, no. Like, 
Yeah. Okay. Great. So the question is, if suffering is part of life and something we can't avoid, how do we not live in fear of it? So um, I think that I think that being afraid of suffering is is very human, and we can have a certain maybe graciousness with ourselves for for being afraid of it. But I think that one of the things we can do to um, fight that fear is to recognize that we're not alone in suffering in a couple of senses. One sense is that uh, whatever our level of suffering is, Jesus' own suffering encompasses it. Mm -hmm. So Jesus suffered to an extent we can't imagine. And when Paul writes uh, in Philippians about this, he talks about a desire to share in Christ's sufferings. And there's a fellowship that's there. There's a way in which we're accompanied by our suffering by Jesus. So that's the first way we're not alone, is that Jesus is a, a sufferer who understands. Uh, the other way we're not alone is it, it often connects us more deeply to other people. So, you know, I mentioned that I have this spinal condition, which is which is really difficult. And I've also come to teach on Providence. And I think if I taught on Providence without having this chronic condition, um, it would lack depth, you know, mm. and it would lack a sense of the kinds of things people deal with on a daily basis. And if I hadn't um, gone through the death of the father, if I hadn't gone through these various things, um, I would be missing out on a, a human community that really arises around these types of suffering that people undergo. So I think it can draw you to connection. And I mean, you've seen that in Kate Bowler's life, for example. I mean, she, as much as she said, you know, everything happens for a reason is a, is a lie I've loved. You can see that that there's been this tremendous connectedness that this has led to for her. And she started a podcast talking to people who um, either live through suffering or support others in suffering in, in various ways. And there's such humanity and depth and meaningful connection that's happening there. So I think that when we go through suffering, that can be isolating and can make us want to withdraw. But if we're willing to open ourselves out, if we're willing to be candid and vulnerable with it, it can often lead to very meaningful connection. And I think that's part of the fellowship of Christ's suffering mm -hmm. is the way it draws us out into community with others, allows us to bear witness to God's preservation, accompaniment, governance in our own lives, um, and above all things, act in love. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid. Well, I think um, there's a good seg segue here because next week, you know what our question is? How could a good God allow suffering in the world? And so our focus next week will be on that that, that really important question of, uh, of suffering. So that's what we're going to be um, uh, talking about next week. But uh, what I'd like to do is... Um, I'm just going to take a moment to pray, and then we're going to thank uh, Dr. Robinson for being with us tonight, and then um, and then we'll we'll shut off the recording and just do a couple of housekeeping things afterwards. Okay, so let me uh, pray, 
and we'll go from here. Lord, thank you for your grace and for your wisdom and discernment uh, through Dr. Robinson tonight. And we thank you so much for him. Uh, we thank you for uh, the way he lives and he walks with a limp. Um, he, he knows you um, and he knows uh, pain and he knows suffering. And um, we're very thankful for the way that he communicates your truth and your grace and your sovereignty and your providence in this world. And so we thank you for all that we've learned tonight. We do pray that we just wouldn't leave here thinking, wow, that was really interesting, but we would see places of intersection in our own life, in, in how we pray, um, in our desire to pray. And so, Lord, we invite you into all the, all the areas of our life, um, in all areas of our life. And we pray that you transform us from the inside out so that we be conformed more and more uh, into the image of your son, and that we would walk with him and experience life. We thank you that at the center of our faith is a cross, a symbol of suffering, a picture of intense suffering, and that we know that uh, in our suffering that you are present with us, but we also know because of the resurrection that suffering will not have the final word, but the final word will be life and love and light. And so we're thankful for that. So help us to dive deep, deep into the waters of the life that you have for us. Forgive us for skimming the surface, for being satisfied with pat answers and not really wrestling with these bigger questions. And we're very thankful for Dr. Robinson for, for, um, and for Regent College for um, engaging with these, these really important questions. And we're very thankful that he could be with us here tonight. So we pray for your blessing to be upon him. Um, as he grieves with the passing of his father, pray for your blessing upon his marriage and his young family and his vocation as a uh, professor uh, and then leader over at Regent. And uh, we commit our lives to you. We pray that as we leave this place, that you would go, go before us, that you would surround us and that we would walk faithfully with you. That is our desire. And we lay that before you in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.